On the 24th of November, Nicholas Pickwode will be speaking on more books in more stately English mansions that he looks after as part of his duties as advisor for conservation to the National Trust. There is an exhibition celebrating the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Friends of the Book Arts Press downstairs in the third floor cases in this building. Tom, I believe you are actually a charter member of the Friends of the Book Arts Press. I think you may be the only, I think you may be one of the only living ones. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but I was looking. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at early newsletters and a, a, a newsletter in the seventh month of the existence of the Friends of the Book Arts Press congratulated itself on the fact that we now had 12 members. We now have well over 300 and growing very rapidly. And the contribution of the Friends of the Book Arts Press to our operations here in calendar 86-87 is likely to be in excess of $50,000. So it uh, has made a big difference in these programs, and we're delighted to celebrate this anniversary. We're also delighted to have an old friend back to speak on Peter Parley. John Lancaster, who is Special Collections Librarian at Amherst and well-known to you all. John Lancaster. Here I am. My name is Peter Parley. I am an old man. I am very gray and lame, but I have seen a great many things and had a great many adventures in my time, and I love to talk about them. I love to tell stories to children and very often they come to my house and they get around me and I tell them stories of what I have seen and of what I have heard. I live in Boston. Boston is a large town full of houses with a great many streets and a great many people or inhabitants in it. When you go there, you will see some persons riding about in coaches and some riding on horseback, some running and some walking. When I was a little boy, and so on in this vein for 142 pages, and indeed for another 142 or so entire books. You'll be relieved to know that I do not propose to attempt a serial dramatic reading of them this evening, but I thought you should have something of the flavor of Goodrich as Parley at the outset. The name of Peter Parley is well known to all of you, I'm sure. Whether you've actually seen one of his books or not, you will have encountered the title of Jacob Blank's pioneering bibliography of American juvenile books, Peter Parley to Penrod. Peter Parley was the creation of Samuel G. Goodrich, a native of Ridgefield, Connecticut, who was born in 1793 and died in 1860. In 1827, Goodrich little knew that his narrator of educational stories was destined to become one of the best known characters of the 19th century. But Samuel Goodrich had a life before Peter Parley as a bookseller, as a publisher, and as an author. And Peter Parley, for his part, took on a life of his own very soon after his creation, especially overseas, where in the mid-19th century, 
copyright laws didn't reach. To complicate the story further, Goodrich continued a parallel bookish life even as Peter Parley became a major industry. Goodrich turned out, with the help of paid writers and editors, many school books and other didactic volumes under his own name, as well as editing a literary annual and writing two slim volumes of verse and two thick ones of autobiography. Thus the subtitle of my talk for this evening. I'm going to talk about both Samuel Goodrich and Peter Parley, together when their careers coincide, but often separately, as the creator and his character go their separate ways. One final introductory point, also an element of my title, I'll be talking about the books of Parley and Goodrich, not about their texts or social history or any more than necessary about biography. David Hall has addressed Goodrich's role in social history in his essay, The Uses of Literacy in New England, 1600 to 1850, which introduces Printing and Society in Early America, the published proceedings of a conference held at the American Antiquarian Society several years ago. And for Goodrich's biography, there is, besides his two-volume Recollections of a Lifetime, which is heavy going at times and often unreliable in details, uh, a shorter work by Daniel Rosell. For me, however, the interest in Goodrich and Parley lies simply in the books they engendered, both as material objects, for many of them are very nice examples of the bookmaking art, and as tangible artifacts providing entree to many facets of 19th century book history, conditions of authorship, and the production, publication, distribution, and ownership of books in both the United States and England, with a few fascinating threads extending into other European and American lands. Goodrich's publishing history begins well before the appearance of Peter Parley on the scene in Hartford, where his uncle Chauncey had been mayor before becoming lieutenant governor of Connecticut. Early in the year 1818, Goodrich writes in his autobiography, I was married to the daughter of Stephen Rowe Bradley of Westminster, Vermont. Here follows a page-long footnote describing General, later Senator Bradley's distinguished career without ever mentioning his daughter's name or anything else about her. After which Goodrich continues, thus established in life, I pursued the business of bookseller and publisher at Hartford. In fact, Goodrich had already been a bookseller and publisher in Hartford since 1815 in partnership with George Sheldon, though it's true that Goodrich's output seems to increase considerably after Sheldon's death in 1817 and his marriage to Senator Bradley's daughter. Some examples will serve to illustrate the character of this early publishing. Old standbys, practical works, and especially religious instruction played the dominant roles, and many of his books were reprints. I might mention uh, here that in the same year as Butler's Farmer's Manual, Goodrich published a multi-volume edition of Scott's works, in light of his later controversy with English publishers, it's worth noting that he neither received permission from nor paid royalties to Scott. Lair uh, is a familiar, will be a, become a familiar name in the publishing of Goodrich. Uh, questions relating to the Bible. The Hartford Sunday School repository appears to have been simply a Goodrich imprint. Goodrich was thoroughly American in his outlook and repeatedly stated his intention of encouraging American men of letters. 
The first manifestation of this was a two-volume poetical works of John Trumbull, a venture on which he claimed to have lost $1,000 because half the subscribers refused to pay for the work after it was published. Two more examples from 1822, uh, Blair again, and an early venture into the school book business. In 1822, Goodrich's wife died. Again, the event occurs without her name in his recollections, and he determined to travel abroad. His family's political connections enabled him to acquire a number of letters of introduction. This is a cover letter from John Quincy Adams, then Secretary of State, forwarding other letters and referring to the help Goodrich had received from Governor Wolcott of Connecticut. Upon his return, Goodrich briefly resumed activity in Hartford, but in 1826 resolved to move to Boston, later proclaiming, and I quote, at that time, Boston was notoriously the literary metropolis of the Union. Then he gives a two-page catalog of the leading literary figures of Boston to prove the point, and continues, the day had not yet come when it was glory enough for a college professor to marry $100,000 of stock or when it was the chief end of a lawyer to become the attorney of an insurance company or a bank or a manufacturing corporation, books with a Boston imprint had a prestige equal to a certificate of good paper, good print, good binding, and good matter. Goodrich had met and been deeply impressed by Hannah Moore on his European trip, and one of his first Boston productions was a two-volume edition of her works. His other publications in Boston in the late 1820s include more reprinting of Blair, a set of the novels of Charles Brockton Brown, another manifestation of his interest in American writers, Mrs. Opie's Father and Daughter, and this work on the kings and queens of France, although by 1828, Goodrich was largely out of the publishing business. That this was so was due in large part to the 1827 appearance of the Tales of Peter Parley About America, the first of the series that quite literally made Goodrich's fame and fortune. The Tales About America were followed in quick succession by Tales About Europe in 1828, which had reached a third edition by 1830, Tales About Africa, Tales About Asia, Tales About the Islands in the Pacific Ocean, and since the earth was quickly exhausted, tales about the sun, moon, and stars, <laughs> and a number of others in very similar formats. The typical binding of these early works uh, displayed a simple leather spine with gold fillets, sometimes with no lettering at all. The boards are covered with plain colored paper, and this style is found on up into the 1840s, parallel with more elaborate cloth bindings, which we'll see some of later. The illustration is in large part undistinguished in these volumes and almost entirely anonymous, but occasionally there's a cut of striking interest, such as this one. At the same time, many of these tales were done up individually in 16-page pamphlets, usually as here with a colored frontispiece. Uh, here, Goodrich, still sort of publishing in 1830, has pasted his label over that of another Boston publisher, Carter and Hendy. The wrappers were usually blue-gray. This is the same pamphlet with a New York imprint label on the cover. It was fairly common for printed covers to bear a different imprint from the title page. 
Reprints and possibly multiple issues were common among these books. Here, for example, are three copies of the Book of Curiosities, all from 1832. The Boston imprint of Carter, Hendy, and Company. Boston, Richardson, Lord, and Holbrook, and Waite and Dow. And Philadelphia, Thomas De Silver, Jr., with subsidiary Boston and New York imprints. And all of those are uh, internally, typographically identical. Very difficult to tell whether they're uh, part of the same printing or simply uh, multiple printings within uh, a very short time. Having discovered the potential of books for children, uh, Goodrich soon began producing a range of books aimed at the school market simultaneously with the Parley Tales. He used both reference to Parley, as in the books of history, uh, and his own name, as in this geography. This edition of the Malta Brun geography, one of the most popular of these books, is the only instance of the usage S. Griswold Goodrich uh, that I have ever encountered. And note the Louisville imprint on this ancient history. Morton and Griswold uh, picked up many of the school books, mostly histories and a few of the readers. Parley and Goodrich titles were published in many cities in America, but the chief centers were Philadelphia, a rival to Boston in the number of different printings, where Thomas T. Ash and De Silver Thomas and Company were major producers. Here's the Tales of Europe again in a revised edition. And many others issued one or a few titles. Uh, and New York, of course, uh, was also a chief center. Mall and Day not only did a, quote, New York series, as you can see the title at the head of, the, um, uh, at the head of this cover, um, though, as you see, the works had nothing to do with the city itself. But he also published toy books. This is the only one I've seen, but others are advertised. They are, as you can imagine, very scarce today. Nafis and Cornish printed a number of titles, all with this distinctive title border. Many of the Nafis and Cornish publications are among those that Goodrich lists as spurious in his autobiography, though so far in checking the American titles he lists as spurious, I've found that almost all have Goodrich's copyright notice on the verso of the title. Uh, Goodrich lists this one, by the way, as two separate works, The Rose and the Bud, uh, as I say, don't depend on him for detail and bibliographical accuracy. Samuel Coleman and his successor, James Giffing, were also uh, among the New York Parley publishers. Parley books also appeared in Baltimore, Cincinnati, Brattleboro, this thing operate on a battery that might be going dead? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem to want to, there it is. Okay, in Worcester, and in Hartford, uh, here appearing in combination with Utica. There were several upstate New York towns that figured from time to time in Goodrich publications, but usually as associates with publishers in major centers. In the 50s and the 60s, some of the larger compendia hit the subscription market. Here you can see 
Harley's panorama, incidentally, is probably uh, the one referred to. Here's an another subscription book. Uh, is probably the one referred to as the Book of Curiosities uh, in this letter to Bowles and Houghton. Goodrich writes, I should be glad to see specimens of the Book of Curiosities. Please let me know how many forms are done. I want to get some idea as to when the work may be finished. Bowles and Houghton existed only from 1849 to 1851, and I can't find any record of the 1832 Book of Curiosities being reprinted. Peter Parley became a household word in America and appeared in the first poem of Emily Dickinson ever published, an 1852 Valentine verse. Since it's also Dickinson's longest poem, I won't quote it in full, but the relevant passage, celebrating our growing knowledge of the physical world, reads, Hurrah for Peter Parley, hurrah for Daniel Boone. Three cheers, sir, for the gentleman who first observed the moon. I must mention here, although I'm afraid I can't show you the first edition, another famous or even notorious Parley book, The Universal History, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne with the help of his sister, for which Hawthorne received $100. The work went through many editions and printings and was one of the best sellers of the line. Its persistence was strikingly confirmed for me when I recently found in the New York Public Library an 1884 sixth edition of a Portuguese translation published in Rio de Janeiro, where the work had been adopted some time before as an official text for the Brazilian schools. Goodrich may not have profited from that particular translation, but he did very well otherwise from the universal history, at Hawthorne's expense, some have said, a fact to bear in mind as we turn to the English theme. When Goodrich had visited England again in 1832, he found that Peter Parley was already popular there through reprints published by Thomas Tegg. I'm showing you a later work here chosen to display Tegg's publishing network with affiliates in Dublin, Glasgow, and Australia. Not sure if you can see that all the way in the back. but uh, Here's a typical cover from another Tegg production. Goodrich visited Tegg, remonstrated with him, and reached an agreement by which he, Goodrich, was to receive, in effect, royalties. Ten years later, having received none, Goodrich again visited England and managed to extract 400 pounds from Tegg. His proceedings and fulminations against English perfidy take up several chapters of his recollections of a lifetime. One must wonder, though, if Tegg and others had perhaps been made less sympathetic to Goodrich by passages such as this one from Tales About Europe, written by the Francophile Goodrich before any of the English publications began below the picture here. In addition to the outright piracies, many of the English Parley books were totally new, written for the English market by at least six different people, the publishers or their hirelings, and shamelessly copying the format and storytelling approach, as well as the name Goodrich had created. They also tended to copy the didactic and humorless writing style, alas. George Mogridge, who had a following of his own as Old Humphrey, wrote Parley's for Tegg. William Martin wrote for Darton, is listed here as the editor, but in fact authored the, the book. Um, this later holiday keepsake, which has Parley listed on the title, has Martin on the spine. The Reverend T. Wilson, 
was a pseudonym of Samuel Clark of Darton and Clark. Other publishers in on the act were Allman. Uh, there's, there's the title to the one that uh, is the Reverend C. Wilson uh, and the title showing the Parley name. Uh, other publishers in on the act were Allman, Boyer with his distinctive wreath portrait of Parley, and Charles Tilt, who wrote this account of pomp and circumstance that particularly irritated the Republican Goodrich. Thomas Richardson of Derby intrigues me. Uh, Goodrich doesn't mention him, but a few very nice Parleys appear over his imprint. In 1842, Goodrich failed to get much from Tegg, but he did conclude some sort of agreement with Darton. This letter appeared in the 1842 printing and later printings of Persevere and Prosper and in others of a series illustrated by S. Williams. Persevere and Prosper was printed from the same or a duplicate set of plates a year later in 1843 in New York as a tale of adventure and included the letter, although it's clearly addressed to an English audience. The English market also produced a number of games and other intriguing oddities. There's only time for one, the Victoria Game of British Sovereigns, or as the title page has it, the Royal Victoria Game of the Kings and Queens of England. Though not a Goodrich production, it was true to his didactic style being simply a chronological sequence of pictures. Players threw a die, moved a counter, and were instructed to study the potted history of whichever king or queen they landed on. Let me show you just a few favorite examples of English bookmaking. In this book of gymnastics, the plates are undistinguished, but the hundred or so stick figure text illustrations are marvelously fantastic. This one provided the basis for the, the uh, striking binding on the book. The bindings are one of the most appealing aspects of the English, as, as well as, as of the American Parley books. I could easily spend an hour on them alone, but here are just two more of my favorites. This is probably the closest to uh, risque of any Parley I've, uh, that I've seen, and that only, I'm sure, to the modern, uh, the modern mind by inference. And this one was neither the source nor the inspiration for the longer work. <laughs> Could we change the uh, trays now? Now I want to return to America and to the early days of Goodrich's career in Boston to look at another facet, the literary annual entitled The Token. Founded in 1828, it grew, both in audience and in physical size, until the late 30s, ending in 1841 after a couple of financially troubled years. In its heyday, here exemplified by volumes from 1838, it appeared in various printings and editions in several cities. This one in Boston, there's one, two, three different printings uh, or editions. Two of those are separate editions in New York. 
another edition in Hartford. Goodrich was able to call on many leading writers. Uh, here's an 1830 letter from William Cullen Bryant stating, I would sooner write for the token than any other of the annuals intended for next year, but he nevertheless declines Goodrich's invitation to do so. But in that very year, Goodrich did print the first of many pieces by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Sights from a Steeple, page 41 in this list. Uh, note in the contents list Goodrich's own contribution following. Hawthorne's work appeared always anonymously in seven of the 14 tokens. There isn't time here to go into the relationship between Goodrich and Hawthorne, which various writers have characterized in widely differing ways. Suffice to say that Goodrich wrote, I know of nothing more vexatious, more wearisome, more calculated to beget impatience than the egotisms, the exactions, the unreasonablenesses of authors. Hawthorne, for his part, once compared Goodrich to maggots feeding on cheese, but in a more charitable mood called him a gentleman of many excellent qualities, although a publisher. Another periodical venture of the early years was Parley's Magazine. Goodrich started it, but claims to have been associated with it for only a year or so. As with many popular serials, as with many popular serials, its volumes were reprinted. The numbering is often confusing, and I haven't untangled its history, if indeed that's possible. Uh, here are two more versions of the same number of this periodical, Volume 2, Part 2, as it's called on this title page. There's Part 2nd, Second Year, and Parley's Magazine, Part 6. I mention Parley's Magazine simply as one branch of the Parley Goodrich tree and move on now to the Cabinet Library. As you may have glimpsed, the Parley books lend themselves to series treatment by publishers, but the one major series begun by Goodrich himself was the Cabinet Library. First appearing in wrappers as here, two numbers to a volume, 20 volumes in all, as the advertisements show, um, bound sets appeared in plain bindings and fancy, in at least one case with numbers on the spine. And individual volumes also appeared later, separately, with no series indication, but in the same style of binding. There were other series as well. Parley's Library, which on the half title is called Parley's Little Library. The Family and School Library, and you'll notice that uh, as with many uh, categories of children's books, condition is not always of the best. It's not always possible to find copies in decent condition. This is the only example of the grandfather's library I've encountered, which apparently began in 1842, almost at the, sa at the same time as the cabinet library. Uh, the title opening shows promise of being more interesting than most, and I'd like to find other volumes of it. Here are three examples of series type bindings that weren't named as uh, series, but were obviously intended to be viewed as related. And the final one is uh, a series of English tales published by Tegg. 
Another Goodrich periodical of the 1840s was Mary's Museum. Here's the wrapper of the first number and the title page of the bound volume incorporating the first volume. It later incorporated Parley's magazine, which Goodrich had disavowed. A number of Goodrich's works appeared serially, serially in Mary's Museum before their book appearance. Mary's Museum also brought its readers information about new technology of the day, such as Adams's power printing press, in which the power is provided by a human being. Although to be fair, the text points out that steam could be used instead. Let me quote just a few lines from the text which may be of some interest to this audience. It is known to most people that printing with types was invented just about 400 years ago. Previous to that time, books were written and a copy of the Bible was worth a good house and farm. Now a Bible can be bought for 50 cents. This wonderful change has not been brought about solely by Gutenberg's invention of movable types. The printing press has a good deal to do with it. In 1846, Goodrich wrote for Mary's Museum this satirical skit against the English nursery rhyme, uh, against the English nursery rhyme tradition, as a sort of review of J.O. Halliwell's Nursery Rhymes of England. Goodrich saw such nonsense verse as inimical to all that was right, good, and useful in the education of children. And to drive his point home, had young Timothy compose and repeat incessantly a parody of such rhymes. It starts in the next column, and I didn't photograph it because you really should hear it read aloud. Higgledy, piggledy, pop. The dog has et the mop. The pig's in a hurry, the cat's in a flurry. Higgledy, piggledy, pop. You can imagine Goodrich's chagrin were he to know that this rhyme was, quote, orally collected in 1945, unquote, and has taken its place perfectly seriously alongside those he so detested enshrined in the Oxford Book of Nursery Rhymes. <laughs> I must mention one final periodical, the English Peter Parley's Annual, which incensed Goodrich by its success and from which he did not profit, and which continued long after his death. This is an early example from 1843. It began in 1841. But the volume soon became more colorful, outside and in. That's one of my favorites. Very modern in feeling. In 1869, Ben George took over the annual, printing the plates in his touted oil colors, and the covers became ever gaudier. 1888, the 47th year, as you can see in the upper left corner, is the latest I've seen, but publication continued on into the mid-90s. I mentioned earlier that Goodrich was a Francophile. He had studied the language and social graces in his 20s with Monsieur Le Comte de Valu, and had visited France on his trips abroad, and had seen the tales of Peter Parley about America come out in French translation, though in Philadelphia to be sure. In Tales About Europe, just after his characterization of the haughty and arrogant English, he continued, the people of France are called French. They are very polite. 
Between his political connections, he had served terms in both houses of the Massachusetts legislature, as well as coming from a political family, and his love of France, he was able to receive appointment to the post of United States Consul in Paris in 1851. His term of little more than two years was by all accounts successful. A goodly number of Americans resident in Paris in 1853 petitioned the newly installed Franklin Pierce to allow him to remain. But politics prevailed and Goodrich had to be content with the medal you see presented to him by those same Americans in Paris. Goodrich stayed on in France for two more years, not returning to the United States until the summer of 1855. One of the results of this stay in France is a bibliographical curiosity, illustrative of the sort of thing that can be found in abundance by looking carefully at books of any century. Appleton in New York published several Parley works which were apparently printed and bound in Paris, doubtless because of Goodrich's presence there. These works, Faggots for the Fireside, Parley's Present, the Wanderers and the Winter Wreath of Summer Flowers are very French in typography. The illustrations in a number of cases bear the imprint of a French firm. In this case, the typographie Ernest Meyer, not a French name to be sure, but a French firm. And to my mind, the most powerful argument for French manufacture, not only are the bindings of the original printings of each of the works in a typically French style, this is the rear cover of the winter wreath of, of uh, summer flowers, but two of the, um, uh, note, note the variation in the uh, color of the paper onlays. Because those were, were paper onlays, of course, it'd be very simple to change from, from one volume to the next as you were uh, stamping them. Um, two, of, two of these uh, typically French bindings are stamped with dyes containing the binder's name, that of Auguste Helt, who was active in Paris between 1843 and 1859. Um, here's the front cover of Winter Wreath of Summer Flowers. Those of you with very good eyesight may be able to see the binder's name here. Um, if not, it may become a little easier now. Here are the two faggots for the fireside bindings, uh, front covers side by side. Here you certainly won't be able to see the Helt Relieur signature, but as we get closer, you may, there's the Relieur out, and then even closer, there. Wherever I've seen later printings or issues, they're in much plainer cloth bindings, which, is not, which are not inconsistent with the styles prevalent in the United States at that time. Some of Goodrich's works were translated into other languages, French, of course, of course both as here for an American audience and for France into German, note this is a second edition, Zweite Auflage, and Danish, also curiously, uh, a second edition. I haven't come across a uh, record of the first edition of either, and Spanish and Portuguese. 
Upon his return from France, Goodrich wrote his autobiography, Recollections of a Lifetime. Written in the form of letters in two volumes, it was published in several printings in 1856 and 1857 and appeared after his death in various abridged versions. Here's an 1863 English version, repeated in New York with a different title in 1864, and a later undated version, circa 1885, with a distinctly different emphasis in the title, extracting as far as possible, but still using the original stereotype plates, Goodrich's accounts of the personages he had known. Here's a Xerox, courtesy of Michael Winship, the editor of the Bibliography of American Literature, showing an 1868 offering of a set of plates for the recollections at $450. Plates of other Parley books survived as well, and reprints continued on into the early 20th century. Um, here's, here's a reprint from 1892, and another from 1902, although the date is perhaps too small and faint to be seen bit out of focus as well here. Um, in our era, a couple of the early works have attained classic status and been, been reprinted in facsimile. One, The Tales of Europe. And this Garland reprint contains a bibliography of the first printings of the Parley books by Morris L. Cohen, who's now the librarian of the Yale Law School. Before I close, I must pay tribute to Morris, who brought me into the world of Peter Parley in the first place. He originally collected many of the volumes you've seen tonight, and by giving them to Amherst College, has provided the opportunity for others to build on and learn from his work. Well, this has been a hasty and even undignified dash through the careers of Samuel Goodrich and Peter Parley, though as I hope I've made clear, many more hours could be spent on either one of them. Parley and Goodrich, through their books, offer a conspectus of 19th century printing and publishing history, spanning the period from the tail end of the hand press era through to the beginning of this century. Periodicals, series, piracy and copyright, subscription publishing, provincial distribution, foreign involvements, fascinating bindings, a full range of illustrative techniques. Though only a small percentage of the books survives, so many were produced that I'm almost guaranteed to find in any library or bookstore which has 19th century books in it. The books are not great literature. Their texts will probably never be edited or even widely read, but as artifacts and documents, they constitute a major chapter in the story of 19th century books with cross-reference to many other chapters. And so I join with Emily Dickinson in shouting hurrah for Peter Parley. Thank you. <laughs>